Hello and welcome to the Life Together podcast, where we share in meaningful conversation about living for Christ and loving one another. Thanks for joining today, and we hope you enjoy this episode. All right, so today I want to start off with a question, and that question is, what does a man gain for all the efforts that he labors under the sun? That question comes from Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 3, and at some point in life, I think almost every person asks this question, and far more than a question about just earning money or finding what to do with uh, your career or something like that. This is really an existential question about our humanity, right? We wake up, we play our various roles, we fulfill our different responsibilities, we go to bed, and then we wake up and repeat. And sometimes we feel great about life under the sun. Things are going well. But other times we feel stressed, We feel weary, maybe frustrated, depressed, or simply just kind of bored and apathetic about life. And I think that often the question breaks in, does what I'm doing really matter? Or what does a person gain for all the efforts that he labors under the sun? Now, I think this is especially true when it comes to our careers, whether a mother, father, teacher, nurse, plumber, scientist, engineer, construction worker, whatever it might be, we want to see the meaning and purpose of our lives and of our labor. We wonder what difference we're making in the world, and we often doubt that our lives make any difference at all. And we can kind of become disenchanted. And so what I want to do in this episode is allow this to be sort of a meditation on the inherent beauty and value of the human vocation. And I use the word vocation because it's more than just a job or career, but sort of the human calling, what it is that we're made for, what we're made to do, why we're here, what is our calling and vocation. And so this is sort of a defense of the mundane. It's a lens through which our reality can be re-enchanted with wonder. And it's an invitation to re-envision the world and our place in it. And altogether, this will hopefully serve as a, as a tool for uh, discussion as we explore what the Bible teaches about the human vocation. Now, before I go on, you've probably noticed that I haven't introduced anybody yet, and that's because for this episode, I'm actually flying solo. Um, so I hope that doesn't uh, disappoint you, but occasionally there may be some episodes like this where there's uh, a, a thought or an experience that I really want to share, but that doesn't quite fit in uh, a Bible class or a sermon or something like that. And this is one of those things that has been on my mind and heart that I think this is kind of the perfect setting for that. 
And so let's just jump right in. There's five things that I want us to think about when it comes to the human vocation. And we'll talk about those things one at a time, and they'll kind of build on each other. And I promise they'll become more and more applicable as we go along. They'll become more practical and find even deeper relevance in our everyday life. And I hope that this is something that is as inspiring and eye-opening to you as it was to me. And so here's the first thing. The human vocation is to bear the image of God, or maybe we could even say to be the image of God. Uh, Now, that takes a little bit of unpacking. We hear the idea of the image of God a lot. That's one of the core themes all throughout Scripture. But it's an idea, a word, a phrase, the image of God, that is rooted in ancient Near Eastern culture, and that when we understand sort of the background of what it means to be the image of God, it becomes so illuminating, and we'll see how that relates to our work and labor under the sun, and how this is so significant to our everyday lives. Because let me say this one other thing before we jump into that. Um, It's kind of hard sometimes to see my place within God's kingdom. Um, Sometimes I uh, think that, you know, growing up, I remember thinking, you know, the role within the kingdom is to be a preacher or a teacher or a deacon or elder. And we kind of uh, hyper-spiritualize our role within God's kingdom. But here's the thing, God's kingdom expands into every aspect of our lives. And I think what God is calling us to do all throughout Scripture is to see our everyday work in lives as a meaningful contribution to the work of His kingdom expanding to the ends of the earth. And that starts with being the image of God. So here's the background. In ancient cultures, there were many creation mythologies that try to explain who we are, why we're here, and how we relate to the divine. And in these epic stories, we typically find a very low view of humanity and consequently a very low view of work. For example, in the Enuma Elish from Babylon, the gods complain to the king of the gods, Marduk, that they're tired of work. They are frustrated, they're tired of all the labor, and so they complain. And so Marduk, he solves this problem by creating a whole new working species, a whole new class of creation called man. And this is what he says. This is so fascinating. He says, I will establish a savage. Man shall be his name. He shall be charged with the service of the gods that they might be at ease. So again, you hear the low view of humanity there. He's a savage. He's something to just kind of be disregarded. And all his role is to do, the only reason that humanity exists is to bear the burden of the gods so that the gods can just take it easy, which means not only a low view of humanity, but also a low view of work and labor. Now, in a similar creation story, we see the same thing. One class of Mesopotamian gods 
has to serve this higher ruling class of gods, and eventually the working class rebels. They become frustrated with their labor, and they go on strike. It becomes this uh, rather interesting story where they're protesting outside of one of the ruling class uh, houses. Anyway, the ruling class then solves this issue by creating humans. And referring to the lower working class gods, here's what the mythology states. It says, their forced labor was heavy. Their misery was too much. Every day, the outcry was loud. We could hear the clamor. Balet Ali, the name of the midwife, is present. And it says, let her then create a human, a man. And it says, let him bear the yoke. Let him bear the yoke. Let man assume the drudgery of God. So, according to these ancient mythologies, humans were created to bear the yoke and drudgery of the gods so that the gods could be at ease. So, a very low view of humanity and a very low view of of work. Work is laborious, tedious, menial, me, menial, pointless, and so man is created, humans are created with the sole purpose of just taking up the drudgery that the gods leave to them. Now, here's why all that's important. Think about that in contrast to what you know about scripture. With all of that background information, think about Genesis 1, 26 and 27, because in contrast, the Bible proposes an extraordinarily high view of humanity and of their vocation. Genesis 1.26 says this, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image and the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Now, to be made in God's image means more than one thing. And I don't want to limit it to just this, this, this one specific thing that we'll talk about. But for our purposes, the central claim is this. Identity shapes vocation. Who we are determines what we do. And here's why that is so important to what we're talking about. In the ancient world, the image of God was a title reserved only for royalty, for the king. Therefore, the the shocking and stunning claim of Genesis 127 is that all humans are made not as slaves, not as creatures to simply bear the drudgery of the God, but all humans are the divine images of God. We represent God as kings and queens over creation, co-ruling with God within the universe. And we could stop right there and just meditate on that thought. That is so powerful and, and incomprehensibly meaningful. Um, 
And here's the thing. If this is true, then our work under the sun must be far more than mere menial labor. If, if we're truly made in the image of God, then work itself, what we're called to do, the role that we're positioned to serve in must in and of itself be divine. And so one author describes it this way. Uh, Tim Keller, he says in a book called Every Good Endeavor, he says, while the Greek thinkers saw ordinary work as relegating human beings to the animal level, the Bible sees all work as distinguishing human beings from animals and elevating them to the place of dignity. So, super powerful quote. Um, but let's explore how our identity as God's image bearers relates to the human vocation. So, specifically, continuing on in Genesis 1 and verse 28, we see how our vocation flows out from that identity. And what we find is that the human vocation is not just to be the image of God, but specifically the human vocation is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's what Genesis 1.28 says. And it's essentially like a job description. It says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And this job description can be broken down in kind of two main parts. First of all, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then number two, subdue the earth and have dominion. Now, it's interesting that the very first part of our job description is to be fruitful and multiply. In many ways, this attitude toward humans is the exact opposite of the gods of antiquity. Um, in many of those ancient mythologies, the gods, they want to wipe out humanity. Um, and they want to wipe out humanity for things that are as simple as being too noisy. That's actually recorded in one of these ancient Near Eastern myths. The humans are causing too much noise, and so the gods send all kinds of perils and plagues into creation as a means of population control. But in contrast to this, again, low view of humanity, the God of the Bible loves humans, and he wants to see them flourish within his good creation. And so the very first command, the very first part of this job description, it's to make more humans. Now, at first, this might not seem to reveal a whole lot about our work and labor yet, because it's kind of like saying, hey, whatever else your job is, your first job is to make more people who can do that job. Not necessarily super helpful. However, this, of course, involves so much more than mere reproduction. Um, so think about it this way. It, it involves everything that it takes to raise a family. And as the saying goes, it takes a village. So as one author puts it, uh, this is John Mark Comer. I know that there are several uh, avid readers of John Mark Comer, uh, or Comer, however you say it here at Lost River, but in one of his books, this is, this is how he describes uh, um, 
what it means to, to be fruitful and multiply. He says, God wants more for Adam and Eve than an ancient version of the Swiss Family Robinson. If you've seen that movie, really good movie. But he's saying God wants more than just the Swiss Family Robinson type uh, 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 socialization and family. He, he wants human beings to make babies, yes, and to make churches, community centers, schools, social services, governments, entire countries. And he, go on, he goes on to list many more things. But uh, the purpose of creating more image bearers is to create thriving civilizations that contribute to true human flourishing. And furthermore, the purpose of creating more image bearers is the other part of that, to fill the earth to fill the earth. And think about what that task involves. It involves exploration, a journey into the unknown. And it also is connected with being fruitful and multiplying in the sense that we're to fill the earth with civilization and innovation. In other words, God doesn't merely want the multiplication of human species, but the flourishing of whole human societies. And God has given this job of culture-making to humans. Or, in the words of Keller again, God could have just spoken the word and created millions of people in thousands of human settlements, but he didn't. He made it our job to develop and build this society. Okay, So that's the first part of this job description, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But the second part of our job description as it flows out from our identity as image bearers of God is to subdue the earth and have dominion. Now, the words subdue and have dominion can kind of come across in a negative way as if it's about the exploitation and domination over nature. But Genesis 1 and 2 describes humanity as being in harmony with creation and with the Creator. So here's how one author puts it. He says, ruling the world as God's image bears should be seen as stewardship. God owns the world, but... He has put it under our care to cultivate it. It's definitely not a mandate to treat the world and its resources as if they're ours to use, exploit, and discard as we wish. So think about that. Instead of implying exploitation and domination, the word subdue really has to do with the assertion of will. That's what it literally means, the assertion of will. And this is what God does in creation in Genesis 1. The world, you remember, is formless and void and dark, but God asserts his will over it by shaping it and filling it in the way that he deems good, and by day six, very good. And so, furthermore, this suggests that creation is not static, but dynamic. As God works to subdue and have dominion, there's a progression from good to very good. And as God's image bearers, our vocation is much the same. While God created the world to be very good, the world was still unfinished. 
it was still not yet fully developed. There's still chaos, there's still emptiness and darkness, and the human vocation is essentially this, to partner with God in the continual process of perfecting creation through the assertion of our will insofar as our will is aligned with God's. Or the way that we could put it is God left creation with deep, untapped potential for cultivation that people can unlock through their labor. So our vocation then is not to be warriors against creation or just simply park rangers over it. Instead, our vocation is is to subdue the earth and share in God's dominion over it by bringing order out of chaos and potential into being. It is to form and fill the world in the way that God wills. Or, relying on Keller again, he puts it this way, the human vocation is about rearranging the raw materials of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. And in this sense, here's what we could say. Our vocation to subdue the earth is a selfless calling, a selfless calling to labor for the good of others. We work not for ourselves, but toward that which is very good for all people. Dominion, in this sense, is an act of service. And so that brings us to a third thing. The human vocation is to be the image of God, and out of that identity flows the other two things, to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and to subdue the earth and have dominion. But as we continue on, after the creation mandate, we move to Genesis 2 and in verses 2 and 3, and we find that the human vocation is also to be priests over the earth, to be priests over the earth. So here's what it says, Genesis 2 and verse 2, on the seventh day, God finished his work uh, that he had done, and he rested from all his work on the seventh day that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Now, Here's something that's interesting. The idea of God resting doesn't suggest that God is like the clockmaker who set creation in motion only to then take his hands away and let time run its course. Instead, God resting on the seventh day is about God taking up residence within his, we could say, cosmic temple. Now, to clarify that, here's what one scholar, John Walton, has to say in his book, The Lost World of Genesis. He says, in the ancient world, the temple was not complete until the God had taken up residence, and the God's taking up residence was not an end in itself, but was the means to the end of ruling and providing for the needs of the people who would come to the temple to meet with the God. The seventh day, he says, thus completes the temple and establishes the cosmic order because it is on this day that God takes up rest in his temple. Now, the implications for that are huge. And and let's try and frame the picture. God creates the world in 
six days. Then on the seventh day, he rests. And what's happening on days one through six, if you look closely enough, you see that God is essentially building a house with sort of these three levels. And we don't have time to go into that, but the seventh day is about him not taking his hands away and letting creation do its own thing, but God coming and filling the the whole creation, the whole cosmos with his very presence to take up this active role within creation. And so this has important implications for our human vocation, our calling. And that's this. If the world is God's cosmic temple, then we are the priests. Walton goes on to say this, the temple motif provides a purpose for the cosmos, a place for God to dwell, and a role for humanity as priests who care for the temple and enjoy the bounty that it provides. Now, this is exactly what the biblical account goes on to describe. In Genesis 2.15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work and keep it. So, God, he forms humans to be priests who serve in the Garden of Eden, which becomes the archetype for the tabernacle and later the temple. And so think about this. The Bible adds another layer of meaning here to the human vocation. We are to be priests over the earth. But here's the question. What exactly does that mean? Well, one theologian, Callistos Ware, he provides, I think, a really helpful answer. He describes our priestly vocation in this way. He says, it's about seeing the world as God's gift, as a sacrament of God's presence, and as a means of communion with him. So part of what it means to be priests over the earth is simply about our perception, the way we see the world. It's about seeing the world as God's holy temple in which everything is, in some real sense, sacred. And let me just say, modern secular culture has done everything it can to shake our minds of that. Uh, Even as Christians, we have to fight against this sort of meaningless view of the world, uh, where we're just so disenchanted. But what the, what the Bible describes is how, no, all of creation radiates with the glory of God and is speaking and communicating to us. And if we're willing to see it that way, if we're willing to see the world as God's good gift and as the temple in which he dwells, then we'll come to realize that all of life itself, all of creation itself is sacred, is in some beautiful way divine. Not divine in and of itself, but divine because it's God-breathed, because his presence permeates it. However, our priestly vocation is about more than simply seeing. It's about more than our perception. It's also about doing and working. In Genesis 2.15, the Hebrew word for work is abad. Uh, Not sure if I'm saying that exactly right, but uh, it's the same word used for worship, which is pretty interesting. Work and worship are the same words. And so in the Hebrew Bible, work and worship are etymologically and theologically interconnected. 
work is in some meaningful way an act of worship through which we fulfill our priestly vocation in God's temple. Now, continuing on that thought, Genesis 2.15 also uses another word, which is keep, right? We're to, he placed man in the garden to work and to keep it. And the Hebrew word for that is shamar. And this implies both protection and cultivation. It's used in both ways. Sometimes it's used for protection, other times it's used for cultivation. And together, these two words, work and keep, suggest that our vocation as priests involves both the work of guarding the sacred creation from evil, while also cultivating creation's potentiality for good. Now, let me unpack that a little bit. Um, we have two roles in this sense. Adam and Eve, is they're placed in the garden to work and to keep it. They're to guard uh, creation. They're to guard the garden from evil and chaos, which ultimately they fail to do, right? Because Adam allows the serpent into the garden. But that's part of our role, to guard the sacred creation from what's evil, from the chaos that is threatening it. Uh, from sin and temptation that defiles it. But then also it's about cultivating creation's potentiality for good. And along these lines, uh, Callistos Ware, that same theologian, he goes on to describe our, our priestly vocation in this way. He says, in a variety of ways, through cultivation of the earth, through craftsmanship, through the writing of books and painting of uh, images, Man gives material things a voice and renders the creation articulate in praise of God. I think this is so profound. In other words, it's about being these sort of mediators within creation, that we reflect God's glory out into the world and the praise of his glory back up to God. And so as we've already articulated, humans are the divine image bearers who partner with God in the subduing of creation in such a way that helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish as they fill the earth. But the human vocation doesn't end there. As priests, we're not only to take part in the transformation of creation, but also the transfiguration of it. It's not just about the transformation of creation, bringing potential into being, but the transfiguration of it, making it something that praises and worships and honors God, that points others to see the glory of God within it. And so maybe here's how we could say it. We are to take the sacred materials of the earth and turn them into something that sings the praises of and shines with the glory of our Father in heaven. And here's what's so cool. In this way, work becomes transcendent. It's not merely secular, but sacramental. Now, I, I know we may not typically use some of these words in this way, and we might not think of everyday life and work in this way, but, but here's this is what Genesis 1 and 2 are all about. It's about getting our eyes open to, to see how we are 
to live within God's world, how we're to see the world around us and relate to it. And when this is our worldview, then work and the everyday labor becomes not just uh, the mere drudgery of the gods, but something that is truly transcendent, something in which we uh, uh, take up the glorious task of being God's image bearers. And it's not merely secular. It's not, I do the whole like religious thing on Sunday and Wednesday, and it's compartmentalized into just that one time and space. But no, work itself, all of life itself is in some real sense sacramental. It's a means of communion with God. Work itself is a kind of worship through which we can honor and glorify and relate to God. Or as one author put it, this is William Deal. He reflects on this in his book called The Monday Connection. He says this, and this is so powerful. I feel like it really clicks in place with this quote. He says, if lay people can't find any spiritual meaning in their work, they're condemned to living a certain dual life not connecting what they do on Sunday morning with what they do the rest of the week. They need to discover that the very actions of daily life are spiritual and they enable people to touch God in the world, not apart from it. Such spirituality will say, your work is your prayer. And I think that's so powerful. I mean, that changes so much for me when I start to see that my everyday life, whatever that might be, whatever role that I'm in, a mother, father, nurse, engineer, construction worker, whatever role that I'm in is an opportunity for people to touch God in the world. I can work in such a way that it becomes an opportunity for people to encounter God. And in that sense, work becomes a kind of prayer. And so our vocation is to be the image of God. And what flows out from that is to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, then to subdue the earth and have dominion. And then thirdly, to be priests within God's cosmic temple. And so in that sense, we are to perfect creation in such a way that mediates the glory of God into the world and the praise of his glory back to God. Okay, but here's the last part. Here's point number five about the human vocation. The human vocation is being redeemed. The human vocation is being redeemed. So far, we've explored the way in which our identity as the image of God shapes our vocation. And this vocation involves filling the earth with thriving God-centered civilizations. It involves co-ruling with God in the dynamic process of subduing creation toward that which is very good. And it involves being priests who protect God's sacred temple and cultivate creation in such a way that mediates the glory of God. All of those are great things. However, there's one problem that we need to address before sort of ending this meditation. And the question that we might ask is this, if all of that is true about our vocation, then why doesn't work always feel this way? You know what I mean? Like 
if, if all of this is true, if we are to co-rule with God and we're to be priests within his cosmic temple and we mediate his glory and all these wonderful things, then why doesn't every day feel like that? Why doesn't my nine to five job feel better than, than it does? And I think there are several ways to answer that question. However, I think it's best to begin with the state of our world. After Genesis 1 and 2 comes what many refer to as the fall. This is when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. And reflecting on that first sin, here's how one author puts it. They say, instead of acting as the mediator or unifying center, man produced division. Blessed with the power to reshape the world and to endue it with fresh meaning, he instead misused that power in order to fashion instruments of ugliness and destruction. So, in other words, out of pride, Adam and Eve rejected their vocation to co-rule and co-create as priests and kings with God. And in this way, the problem with work is that it can become self-centered. We can work merely for our own gain and glory. And that's a very real problem that we see play out all around us, right? When I begin when I begin to work just for myself, for my own greed and gain and glory, it takes away from my vocation to be the image of God, to be uh, to, to rule and create alongside God in a completely selfless and other-oriented way. Um, but the other problem with work not being all that it's meant to be in our current world is that the result of this sin resulted in a fracturing. Uh, sin fractured our relation with ourselves, with other people, with creation, with God, and sin also fractured our relation to work. There in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 through 19, we find the curse which involves labor pains for both men and women. And I'm kind of using that as a play on words, but women would experience increased pain and childbearing and feel the struggle for power in the world, which is a consequence that relates to our vocation to be fruitful and have dominion. And men would experience the pain of toiling over a cursed ground that yields thorns and thistles, a consequence that relates to our vocation to subdue and cultivate. And so the problem with work is that it can become not just self-centered, but self-defeating. We can throw all our efforts into the toilsome task of work and still feel dissatisfied and defeated at the end of the day. We can feel like our work means nothing. But here's the good news. While work has been affected by the curse, we believe the human vocation is being redeemed. In Revelation 21, we find uh, another garden. However, this is not 
merely a, a garden, but a garden city. It's the new Jerusalem. And in this Edenic city, Revelation 21, beginning in verse 24, says this, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. So commenting on this beautiful thought, the Croatian philosopher and theologian Miroslav Wolf writes this. He says, The noble products of human ingenuity, whatever is beautiful, true, and good in human cultures, will be cleansed from its impurity, perfected, and transfigured to become a part of God's new creation. They will form the building materials from which the glorified world will be made. Now, I don't know how that quote hits you, but for me, that's like so much to take in. The human vocation is to be the image of God, to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue the earth and have dominion over it, to be priests and kings over it. But that's not always what we experience. We experience the brokenness, the fractured relation to work that we have, how we experience the curse and we experience the thorns and thistles and the pains of life. But one day, one day, the human vocation, who we were called to be all along, will be fully and finally redeemed. And all of human ingenuity, the very best of what's beautiful, good, and true, is going to be not just present in the new creation, but perfected in the new creation, cleansed of every aspect of it that was incomplete or impure or not all that it needed to be. And it's going to be transfigured in such a way that's so glorious and powerful. And right now, right now, our work is contributing to that in some way. It's forming the building materials from which the glorified world will be made. That's the message of Revelation 21. And so let's kind of bring it back down to earth for, for a moment. In this age, work may be flawed with selfish ambition or fraught with dissatisfaction and pain. But ultimately, work is being redeemed. One day our work here on earth will be freed from all its imperfections and will form the foundation upon which God's new creation will be built. And in this new creation, will thrive in our renewed and glorious vocation to be the image of God. And this is what a man gains from all his efforts that he labors under the sun. And if this is true, if our vocation is being redeemed, then perhaps the most important thing right now is that we have the eyes to see it. We need to see the nurse who guards the sacred life of humanity against evil and suffering. We need to see the architect or the engineer who helps draw thriving communities out of the earth's potential. We need to see the veterinarian 
who compassionately rules and has dominion over every living thing, just like Genesis 1. We need to see the school teacher who helps fill the earth with image bearers of God. We need to see the electrician who subdues the darkness and brings order out of chaos. We need to see the artist who turns the sacred things of earth and is something that shines with the glory of God. And upon seeing the truth about our human vocation, I think we need to encourage one another in the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Or, as the great novelist Dorothy Sayers once said, the very first demand that religion should have upon the carpenter is that he should make good tables. It's through this lens that we can re-envision the human vocation. And it's through this lens that we can be re-enchanted in our everyday work with God. And so that's what I uh, have to share. That's what was on my mind from uh, some studies that have been going on about uh, the human vocation and how our careers, our sort of secular jobs relate to the church and our work in God's kingdom. And I hope that that didn't get too bogged down and too, I don't know, wordy and scholarly and getting too much into the weeds. But to me, just this thought of what we're here to do and what God has called us to be and what we're ultimately one day going to become has just changed so much about how I see the world and how I see um, the people around me and how almost every little thing that I do in life is kingdom work. Uh, As a preacher, um, I get to do what often feels like kingdom work, right? Just preaching and teaching classes and ministering within the church. Um, But I've come to realize that God's kingdom work extends so far beyond uh, specific church offices or things like that, that all of life and everything that we do day in and day out is an opportunity to work within God's kingdom and extend God's kingdom work to the ends of the earth, just like Adam and Eve were called to do in the very beginning. And so I hope that encourages you. I hope that inspires you this week. Again, less conversational, but I hope that this was, uh, was, was helpful and uh, look forward to um, the next episode. Uh, thanks and have a blessed day.